sermon comes from the book of 1 Thessalonians. Uh, We're working our way through this little book in the New Testament. Um, We're more than halfway through now, um, and I trust that you've been encouraged by the book as much as I have. Uh, This morning we're going to look at actually two uh, passages of Scripture because they've got the, the same theme. And I saw no reason in just preaching the one theme and then having a break and then preaching the other. We're going to put them together. So we'll look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 9 to 12, and then chapter 5, verse 12 to 15. Paul writes and he says, Now about your love for one another, we don't need to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. And in fact, you do love all the brothers and sisters throughout Macedonia. Yet we urge you, brothers and sisters, to do so more and more. Make it your ambition to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business, and to work with your hands, just as we told you, so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders and so that you will not be dependent on anybody. In chapter 5, verse 12. Now we ask you, brothers and sisters, to respect those who work hard among you, who are over you in the Lord, and who admonish you. Hold them in the highest regard in love because of their work. Live in peace with each other. And we urge you, brothers and sisters, warn those who are idle, encourage the timid, help the weak. Be patient with everyone. Make sure that nobody pays back wrong for wrong, but always try to be kind to each other and to everybody else. This is God's word. So you might remember that at the end of chapter 3, the apostle prays for the Thessalonians, and he prays in this way. He says, May the Lord make your love increase and overflow for each other and for everyone else, just as ours does for you. And now in chapter 4, he returns to this idea of love. And he says, now about your love for one another, we don't actually need to write to you. For you yourselves have been taught by God to love each other. And in fact, you do love all the brothers and sisters throughout Macedonia. And yet we urge you to do so more and more. I love our church, and I love the way that people love each other and love outsiders. I I love the variety of different ways in which we do that as well, Uh, from our life groups to our fusion groups to our U-turn to all the different ways in which we love both people in the church and those who are yet to come into the church. But love is never something that we can tick off and say, I've done that. The Bible urges us to grow in love for one another. So interesting, last week uh, we looked at the beginning of chapter 4 where Paul says, we instructed you how to live in order to please God as in fact you are living. And now we ask you and urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more. In other words, we saw how Holiness is a lifetime project. Our aim should be to please Jesus more and more. And now equally here, we see that love is a lifetime project. Paul says, you do love all the brothers and sisters, 
yet we urge you to do so more and more. It's never something that we can just tick off our to-do list. How do we learn to love one another more and more? In his commentary on these verses, Pastor Warren Weasby says this, How does God cause our love to increase more and more? By putting us into circumstances that force us to practice Christian love. The difficulties that we believers have with one another are opportunities for us to grow in love. How do we grow in love? God puts us in difficult situations, or he sends us difficult people to love. I think I might have told you before about a monastery um, uh, run uh, a couple of centuries ago, in fact, by a man called Gurdjieff. Uh, It was a French monastery, uh, and at one point, an, an old man joined this community, and he was just the personification of difficulty. He was irritable, he was messy, he would fight with everyone, he was completely unwilling to do his share and clean up. No one got along with him. And finally, after many frustrating months of trying to stay within this group, the old man left and went to Paris. And the whole community breathed a collective sigh of relief. But Gurdjieff, the leader of the monastery, followed the old man to Paris and tried to convince him to return. The old man said no, it had been too difficult, he wasn't coming back. And Gurdjieff pleaded with him, and in fact he even offered the man a salary if he would return. Well, this was just too good to be true, and so the old man decided he would come back to the monastery. And when the old man returned, the other monks were horrified. They'd just got rid of him, and now he'd come back. And when they heard that he was actually being paid to be there, they went berserk. They had to pay in each month to be there, and now this man was going to be paid to be in their community. And so they came to Gurdjieff and asked him what was going on. And Gurdjieff laughed, and he explained to them, This man is like yeast for bread, he said. Without him, you would never really learn about anger, irritability, patience, and compassion. That's why you pay me and I hire him. (laughs) Our love for each other doesn't grow when everything is sweetness and light. Our love for each other grows in adversity. In 1 John chapter 3, uh, the Bible says, We know that we have passed from death to life because we love each other. The clear evidence that we've moved from death to life is seen in the fact that we love each other. But the genuine test of our love for others isn't at Christmas where we feel a warm Christian goodwill. The genuine test of our love is seen in difficult times. In one of his books, uh, Dallas Willard points out that when we have difficulties with one another as believers, our natural tendency is to want to pull away. But he urges us to use those opportunities to draw closer. Differences and difficulties and downright disagreements are an opportunity for us to practice genuine Christian love and community. And so as James puts it, we should perhaps count it joy. (laughs) This is an opportunity for me to practice genuine Christian love, even in a difficult situation.
Well, in these verses, Paul mentions four categories of people who need our love in particular. Four groups of people who need love in various ways. And let's spend some time looking at these. Uh, Just to say we'll spend more time on the first point. For those of you who may be watching your watches, uh, don't think, oh no, there's another three points. The first one's a bit longer. Because the first group of people who need love are the idle. Uh, These folk need love, but it's very interesting to see what love looks like in regard to these folk. At, At first it might not seem like love at all, but really it is love. Love can be found in various forms. But have a look at chapter 5 and verse 14. Paul says, And we urge you, brothers and sisters, warn those who are idle. Now, the Greek term that Paul is using here for idle originally referred to soldiers who were undisciplined or insubordinate. Uh, It had the sense of playing truant. uh, But its main use is in relation to work. And the idle were those who had given up on work. In fact, there were a number of Christians in the city of Thessalonica who'd resigned their jobs and had given up working. Uh, We're not 100% sure um, why they did that, um, but one of the main reasons seems to be their eschatology. In other words, what they believed about the second coming of Jesus. And we're going to look at that a little bit later on in, in Paul's letter I remember hearing about a Bible college student whose particular interest was in the second coming of Jesus. That was his big topic, and he could talk of nothing else. Uh, he was forever collaring his fellow students and presenting them with uh, long schematics about when Jesus would come and how it fitted into the millennium. And uh, he, he had it all figured out, book of Revelation, book of Daniel. That was it. He kept on asking his fellow students, would they be ready when Jesus returned. Any conversation you had with him turned to the second coming of Jesus. Uh, And uh, eventually his fellow students decided they'd had enough of this. Uh, One afternoon he was studying quietly in his room at the Bible College residence. And normally the residence was pretty busy. Uh, There would be a game of soccer going on in the quad the cafeteria would be full uh, of students uh, eating and chatting. People would be wandering the corridors. That afternoon, the students cleared the residence. Everybody went into their rooms. There wasn't a soul to be found anywhere on the sports field, in the cafeteria, nowhere. And then one of the students got outside his door and blew a trumpet blast and then disappeared into his room. And the student dashed out of his room thinking this was at the second coming and then was horrified to discover that everybody else had been taken (laughs) except him. And it seems that something similar to that was happening in Thessalonica. Uh, Paul had explained to the Thessalonians how Jesus was returning and some of those Christians expected Jesus to return at any time. Instead of being hard-working then, waiting for Jesus to return. They'd given up on work, and, they'd le- and that had led them to, to laziness. Many of them had just given up their jobs and were kind of sitting around waiting for Jesus to come back again. Now, expecting Christ to return is important, but here we can see how, how that led just to, to laziness, and it had a, a number of consequences. Just to say here that Paul isn't speaking about those who are unemployed. 
that's often a very painful and a very traumatic and a very humbling situation to be in. Uh, to be unemployed, uh, to be retrenched is very difficult. Paul isn't speaking about people who want to work and who can't find work. He's speaking about those who had work but who had given up on it and had been irresponsible in their attitude towards work. And he says that they're to be warned. And he says so for three reasons. Firstly, because they become dependent on the body of Christ. In other words, other people have to work harder in order to keep them clothed and fed. Have a look at chapter 4, verse 11. Paul says, work with your hands so that you will not be dependent on on, on anybody. One of the ways that we love each other as a congregation is to support those who find themselves in financial need. The Bible tells us to do that. But notice that another way we are to love one another is by fulfilling our obligation to work where that is possible so that we won't be a burden on the body of Christ. I think that's quite important to see. That also applies to those of us who do have work. We have to be responsible with our work. We have to plan out things so that we don't become a burden on on anyone else. Secondly, the believers are to be warned because their behavior was a bad witness to people around them. Paul says, work with your hands so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders. Now, all legitimate employment can be done to the glory of God. Jesus spent 30 years of his life quietly doing normal work. I'm fairly sure he helped his mom around the house. And he was a tradesman, a carpenter, for most of his adult life. And in doing that, Jesus gave dignity to all honest human labor. When we offer our labor to God in worship, it can be a very powerful testimony to the people around us. And these men and women were being lazy. They were being irresponsible. And it was a bad witness to the people around them. And thirdly, Paul says, these believers are to be warned because their idleness leads to mischief. They stop worrying about their own lives and they take an inordinate interest in the lives of of others. Now, of course, part of Christian love is an interest in the lives of those around us. Uh, We couldn't obey Paul's command here, warn the idle, unless we were involved in the lives of others and knew who the idle were. But there's a fine line between caring for people and an over-interest in their lives. And so Paul says in chapter 4 and verse 11, make it your ambition to lead a quiet life and to mind your own business. This really seems to have been a problem in Thessalonica because Paul has to address it in his second letter to the Thessalonians. In chapter 3, he says, we, we hear that some of you are idle. They're not busy, they're busy bodies. Such people we command and urge in the Lord Jesus Christ to settle down and earn the bread they eat. Again, as I say, there's a fine balance here. We, we need to be concerned about others. We need to help them. We need to encourage them. We need to be saying to one another, how are you doing? There may even be times where we have to say, are you sure you should be doing that? But our concern can't lead to a holier-than-thou attitude. It can't lead to gossip 
or slander or maliciousness. Paul says, make it your ambition to live a quiet life and to mind your own business. In other words, my chief concern has to be my relationship with Jesus. My chief concern needs to be to shepherd the little family that God has, has given to me. I often think of uh, Jesus' call to Peter at the end of John's Gospel. Uh, you, you remember that Jesus, after Jesus had been raised from the dead, he, he meets Peter and he, he reinstates Peter. He says to Peter, follow me. And Peter looks around and he notices that there's somebody else who's already following Jesus. It's the disciple John. And Peter says to Jesus, Lord, what about him? And Jesus says, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? Uh, You must follow me. So there are those who are idle. Uh, Paul says you you need to give them tough love. Uh, they, They need to be warned But there are a few other groups of people who Paul mentions in in these verses too. Uh, The second group that Paul mentions are the timid. Uh, Chapter 5 and verse 14, he says, encourage the timid. Uh, The the Greek word for timid is just such a great word. It's oligosykoi. You can maybe use that in Scrabble sometime. I just think it's a lovely word, oligosykoi. It it means faint-hearted those who are excessively worried about their salvation and faith, those who find it difficult to to keep on believing. And and every church has dear folk like this who who battle to keep on putting one foot in front of the other, uh, who battle with tendencies to to doubt and despair. And Paul says they're to be encouraged. Keep on phoning them up. Keep on visiting them. Keep on WhatsApping them. Uh, encourage the timid. Thirdly, Paul mentions the weak, those who find it difficult to live out their lives as Christians. Remember, he's been speaking about sexual immorality in the first part of this chapter, and so possibly the weak are those who battle sexually. And again, verse 14, Paul says, you're to help the weak. And uh, the Greek word for help that that Paul uses here presents a a wonderful picture of of what we're to do for these folk. It it literally means that we're to hold on to them. We're to cling to them. We're to put our arms around them. We're to look out for the weakest members of our community. It's wonderful in theory, help help the weak. But how, how does it work in practice? Arthur Boers is a, is a pastor and a, and a writer, and in one of his books he writes about something that took place in their Catholic community. It was an inner-city mission in, in America, and uh, he, he writes about something that happened there. I think it illustrates what he says about the timid and the weak. He says, For one life-changing summer, my wife and I lived in a Catholic worker community in inner-city Detroit. Our home was an emergency shelter for women, children, and families. And as well as attending to the shelter's needs, we helped at a soup kitchen in the neighborhood. Every Sunday, there was a worship service in the house, and the Eucharist was celebrated. That's communion for you, Baptists, uh, followed by a potluck meal. This event attracted service-orientated believers from across the city, peace and justice activists, shelter guests, and soup kitchen patrons. 
The services were always memorable. One regular attender, whom I'll call Donnie, was a homeless man who measured over seven and a half feet tall. One Catholic worker told me of the difficulty of finding him shoes. This giant attended every Sunday for many years. He would have loved nothing more than to lead the service, but because of mental problems, his skills were limited. Besides, this was a Roman Catholic Eucharist, and only a duly ordained priest could preside. During the Eucharistic liturgy, Donnie had an annoying habit of repeating the last phrase of everything the priest said. He'd heard the liturgy so often that he'd practically memorized it. Sometimes he tried to say the prayers and formulas before the priest did. His habit was distracting and hardly worshipful. But how does a community committed to compassion and hospitality deal with such a problem? Donnie was not mentally equipped for extended reasoning or careful conflict resolution. Uh, Besides, you want to be careful about getting into conflict with someone who stands seven and a half feet tall. There were temptations for the group. Some, no doubt, wished that Donnie would disappear. Some wondered about silencing or evicting him. Resentment and annoyance would have made it easy to resort to criticism, avoidance, name-calling, or labeling. But those who serve in Catholic worker communities are known for their idealism, and they succumbed to none of those temptations. The community wrestled with the issue for a long time. Their solution was brilliant. Donnie was given one phrase in the service, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This was his line and no one else's. At the appropriate moment, the celebrant elevated the loaf of bread in silence and waited for Donnie to say his line, which he did with gusto, enthusiasm, devotion, and even panache. Donnie got his wish for a meaningful leadership role in the service. He did so without detracting from the ceremonial solemnity of the rest of the worshippers. During the remainder of the service, Donnie sat quietly and contentedly, a rare accomplishment at any time in his life. Donnie stood out for many reasons, a freakish physical stature, mental illness, extreme poverty, membership in an oppressed race. It wasn't easy for this alternative Christian community to know how to include him, yet its brilliant solution was good for everyone. And Arthur Boers goes on to say, Every church I've served as a pastor had its characters and misfits who were social outcasts, unemployable, delusional, dysfunctional, or disreputable. Their behavior was not always congenial, and sometimes it was difficult. Yet the congregation and I were usually grateful for their presence and often glad that the church provided at least one place where they could consistently experience God's love. And then there's a fourth group of people that we need to love. That's pastors. (laughs) Pastors are people too. Sometimes they're idle, timid, and weak as well, but we won't go into that. Have a look at chapter 5, verses 12 and 13. Now we ask you, brothers and sisters, to respect those who work hard among you, who are over you in the Lord, and who admonish you. Hold them in the highest regard in love because of their work. 
I think that there are two equal and opposite errors that congregation members and pastors can make in regard to this verse. The one would be to put a pastor up on a pedestal, and the other mistake would be to knock him off again. (laughs) But have a look at what Paul says here, because these verses are, are quite important for anyone who ministers in a church, whether that's as a pastor or as a Sunday school teacher or as a Bible study leader or as a youth worker. Firstly, Paul describes pastors as those who work hard among you. And it's so interesting that the word that Paul uses here actually speaks about manual occupation. Uh, It means to toil, to strive, to struggle, to grow weary. Um, It conjures up pictures of rippling muscles and pouring sweat. (laughs) Uh, Paul applies this this, uh, verb to to farm laborers. Um, All good Christian labor is, is hard work. Secondly, while, while Paul says uh, those who are over you in the Lord, uh, he's speaking about the, the respect that they deserve, it's important to remember that pastors are those who are under us in the Lord as well. The true Christian leadership is servant leadership. And while pastors may deserve respect, they're only over others in the sense that a father is over his children. Remember, Paul used that image in chapter 2. He said, you know that we dealt with you as a father deals with his own children. How? In authoritarianism or in in judging? No, in encouraging, comforting, and urging you to live lives worthy of God. And thirdly, Paul speaks about those who admonish you. The Greek word speaks about a loving confrontation. Again, not a harsh, I know better than you, but a pleading concern, uh, an affection, uh, a longing. I think if you were to put all of that together, um, at least when when I think of Paul, and I think as Paul as a pastor, I think about what what he writes in 2 Corinthians 11, where he says, besides everything else, I face daily the pressure of my concern for all the churches. Who is weak and I do not feel weak? Who is led into sin and I do not inwardly burn? And folk, I and uh, Craig and Bernadette and Bevan and Robert and Annie, we need your help in this task of being a pastor. We need your prayers in order for us to live up to this picture that Paul paints in these verses. And if you're a Bible study leader, if you're a Sunday school teacher, if you're a children's worker, if you serve the coffee, this is your job description too. Hard work, servant leadership, loving admonition, and encouragement. And so Paul mentions these four groups of people in in the church, the idle, the timid, the weak, the pastor. He says we're to, to love these folks. And then he gives us just four important ways in which we are to love these folk and everyone else as well. Have a look at chapter 5 in the second part of verse 13. Uh, Paul says, live in peace with each other. Be patient with everyone. Make sure that nobody pays back wrong for wrong, but always try to be kind to each other and to everybody else. So we're to live in peace. Um, Paul writes to the Christians in Rome and he says to them, if it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live in peace with 
everybody. He says that we're to be patient with everybody. Now, the other word for patience is long-suffering. Instead of having a very short fuse, we're to have a really, really, really long fuse. Uh, we're to put up with people, remembering that God has put up with us in love. Let me, let me quote um, one writer on this point. He says, One might say that the idle, the anxious, and the weak were the problem children of the church family, plagued respectively with problems of understanding, faith, and conduct. Every church has members of this kind. We have no excuse for becoming impatient with them on the ground that they're difficult, demanding, disappointing, argumentative, or rude. On the contrary, we're to be patient with all of them. Patience or long-suffering is an attribute of God, a fruit of the Spirit, and a characteristic of love. Since God has been infinitely patient with us, we too must be patient with others. Paul goes on and says that we're to exhibit goodness. And he says that we're to see that no one pays back wrong for wrong. Tragically, I've seen it a number of times where someone is wronged or they think, or they, they just think that they've been wronged. And as far as they're concerned, that entitles them to get back at another person. The fact that they're wrong, they believe, frees them from any biblical restriction on their behavior. And they can do what they want because they've been wronged. Uh, there's a Greek word for that as well. Uh, it's called hogwash. <laughs> there's never any excuse to be mean or nasty or vindictive to anyone who's hurt us. Quite the opposite, in fact. Remember Jesus saying, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who ill-treat you. So often, even in terms of, of unforgiveness, you know, somebody has wronged us, and so we compound the problem because we're waiting for them to apologize to us first. And we hold on to things and resentment, and it can cause real difficulties in our lives. The writers of the Bible put these things in Scripture. God has given it to us in Scripture, not, not to make us ashamed, but, but for our own good. It does us good when we, when we forgive and we don't retaliate. And then the final attitude that Paul speaks of is, is kindness. He says, be kind to one another and everyone else. That little phrase, and everyone else, just slips in there. Who are the everyone else? Well, it's the world outside. And it's so interesting because at the moment, the world outside the church in Thessalonica is actively trying to stamp out Christianity and is actively persecuting Christians. And yet Paul says, you're to be kind to everyone else, even those who are hurting you. Do you notice the inclusivity in these verses? It says, live in peace with each other. Be patient with everyone. Make sure that nobody pays back wrong for wrong. Always try to be kind to each other and to everyone else. And what a wonderful picture this is for us then. 
One writer puts it this way. He says, the whole congregation have the responsibility to care for each other as sisters and brothers, to give appropriate support, encouragement, or admonition to the church's problem children, and to ensure that all its members follow the teaching of Jesus, cultivating patience, renouncing retaliation, and pursuing kindness. It's a beautiful vision of the local church as a community not only of mutual comfort and encouragement, but of mutual forbearance and service as well. Well, that's more than enough to keep us going for one week. (laughs) We've been taught by God to love one another. Praise God, we do love one another. Yet we're urged to do so more and more. In particular, we're to look out for the idle, the timid, the weak, the pastor. And we're to do that through peace, through patience, through goodness, through kindness. Let's pray together.